0: We're now in uh, Deuteronomy chapter 5. We're moving a little bit slowly for, through the first chapters, but as we move on in Deuteronomy, we'll be moving uh, just a little bit quicker. There's uh, a lot in this chapter today, and I can't say near, anything, near, near all of what I would like to say or could say. So I would just like to, uh, without further ado, uh, move ahead in the limited time that we have. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open to chapter 5 of Deuteronomy. Otherwise, the text will appear on the wall. We're going to start off by reading the first three verses. We're not going to read the whole chapter today, but just sections of it. You remember that this, um, this writing takes place as Israel is on the east side of the Jordan River after having wandered through the desert for 40 years. They're right at the point of moving into the promised land of Canaan, And this is Moses' farewell speech in which he's been recounting the history of Israel as well as giving them the, um, what we normally call the commands, the statutes, the ordinances of the Lord as to how they're supposed to fill in their lives as they live in the promised land. And so we're moving on with Deuteronomy 5 verses 1 to 3. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing, t- that statutes and rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb, that is Sinai. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. And it's with that last sentence I just want to stop for a minute and, p- and point your attention to. Moses is talking about an event that happened 40 years ago in the previous generation. You remember? All the people that had been at Mount Sinai and had seen the Lord on top of the mountain, had seen Moses come down with the statue, with the Ten Commandments on the stones, they were all dead, because it was 40, it's 40 years later. So it's a totally new generation, and yet Moses says, it's not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant. He did, of course. But with us, all of us who are here alive today, and I just want to plant that perspective in your mind as we listen to these words and then as we go in a few minutes to the communion table and remember something that happened 2,000 years ago, but is actually also happening today. The events... And the words, in some sense, are also happening with us today. It's a very wonderful thing to think about. So I just want to plant that in your mind as we move ahead uh, through this chapter and through the service. And then we're going to move to the Ten Commandments. You may know that in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the Ten Commandments are summarized before Moses moves into the ordinances and laws. And before we read the Ten Commandments, I want to make a couple comments in terms of perspective. Certainly I, and I believe most Christians, certainly most Western evangelical Christians, tend to read the Ten Commandments in a transactional way. That is, if you do this, God says, I will do that. If you don't do this, I will do that or I won't do that. And our whole perspective on Christianity and our whole perspective on our relationship with God becomes rooted in this idea that there's a transaction that happens. And it struck me this week as I ran across the traditional definition of the word grace. The traditional definition of the word grace is that grace is undeserved... Merit. We all say, of course, that's what grace is. It's undeserved merit. I've learned that my whole life. But even hidden in those words is transaction. You either deserve something or you don't. You either deserve merit or you don't. And there's this deep root of transaction. And I just want to point that out because we're so used to it, we don't even think about it. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that that idea of transaction, the centrality that it has, has sent us on some wrong paths. It's not that there isn't any transaction involved, but if that's the heart of it, and the heart of the way we read the Ten Commandments, then we're we're getting derailed. And the second thing is that we tend to read the Ten Commandments as describing primarily the way we are to relate to God in the sense of, if I do these things, God will be happy with me. If I do these things, God will accept me into his kingdom. If I act this way, then I'm acting in relationship to God and to His holiness in the way that He wants me to act. There's this very vertical orientation. Those of you who are who grew up in the Christian Reformed Church are familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism is very clear on this. The, the last section of the Heidelberg Catechisms is about the Ten Commandments. And why do we keep the Ten Commandments according to the Heidelberg catechism, because we're grateful to God for what he did for us in Christ. I don't want to take anything away from that. That's absolutely true. But it's not the whole story. If you see the Ten Commandments as transactional and as only in relationship to God, of course I love you, but the reason why I love you is because when I love you, God will be happy with me. you can get quickly derailed. Here is, an, is a, a more full perspective, and I quote from Walter Brueggemann here, one of, the, one, of the, um, one of the authors I'm reading for this study. The Ten Commandments are not simply ten rules related to specific attitudes and actions. They are that. Taken all together, however, they are a sketch of an alternative way of envisioning and living in the world. You remember we've talked about this. We're not a lifeboat. We're a colony. That is, in a connectedness, and notice that word connectedness. Do you remember a few weeks ago we talked about this web of belonging? It's, the same, it's another word for the same thing. We are connected. This connectedness changes everything. The Ten Commandments require intentionality in the ordering of a what? An alternative community. A colony. That that daily lives differently in the world. The commandments urge a life beyond social utility and productivity. The value of the neighbor is intrinsic. That is, my neighbor is valuable just because he is. Not because of what he or she can do or offer me. And you who, who know me will know that this is one of my huge criticisms of our current society. We are a society that focuses on social utility and productivity. We're individualistic and we're transactional. Even us Christians. And we miss this idea of connectedness and that the value of the other and not just the neighbor but the creation is intrinsic and not utilitarian. That as preface, let's read Deuteronomy 5 6 to 7, which is the first, what we call the first table of the law. you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And I want to comment here that if you go back to the Ten Commandments as they appear in in Exodus 20, and this commandment of the Sabbath, the reason for keeping the Sabbath is not because of the liberation from Egypt, but because God on the seventh day rested. You can go back and check that this afternoon. So Moses is using a different reason here, for keeping the Sabbath, and that reason is the liberation from Egypt. I'm not going to talk about that anymore, just an interesting thing to point out and to think about. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. Now, I realize it's almost impossible for uh, people to remember uh, past sermons. Uh, Most people, if I ask on Sunday afternoon or if they want to talk about the sermon of that morning, they can't even remember it. And to tell you the truth, sometimes I can't even remember it. But you may remember from last week, we focused on two thoughts in Deuteronomy 4. And the first one was this, where um, Moses says to Israel, What great nation is there that has a God so near to us? or so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him. I don't know if you remember that. This idea that, the, that our God is near us, and we talked, of course, about the incarnation of Christ. This idea that God is near us. That's what makes Israel different from every other nation at that time. These commandments don't have any other gods before me. Don't have any carved image. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Observe the Sabbath. I think can be read in this light of what does it mean to know and to remember and to experience that God is near us. It is, of course, wrong to bow down to another god in whatever ways we modern people do that. It is wrong to expect salvation from something that we humans have made, including our military might. It's wrong to manipulate God for our own purposes. It's wrong to abuse others or the creation that God has made and given us by not giving us its due, its due rest. Or by abusing the power that we have over them. But we do or do not do these things, or or we we're we're not giving God His place. Let me put it this way: when we do not admit, or see, or understand, or live as if He is near, we live as if He doesn't exist. We live as if he's not near us in every place and every moment of time. Or in the old Latin phrase, we don't live coram deo, before the face of God. And it's real interesting. Um, I looked up this word where, where God says, uh, do, not, do not have any other gods before me. That word before... That word before actually means presence. Or in front of someone's face. So God is saying to the people through Moses, do not have another God in front of my face. I'm right here. Don't have something else in front. Can't you see I'm right here? Why in the world would you trust something else? Why in the world would you ignore me? Why in the world would you live as if I don't exist? I'm right here. I'm right I'm, 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 I'm right here, and you're living quorum Deo in front of my face. To quote Brueggemann again, "The value of God is not utilitarian, not what I can get from him, not this transaction. It's intrinsic. We're connected to him, or as Paul said in Acts fifteen on the on the Greek Areopagus in Athens, in him we move and live and have our being. We are intimately connected to this God. You see what, what Moses is what God is and Moses are laying down at, at, at this moment before Israel goes into Canaan, I am with you. I am near you. Live before my face. I I don't have any more time to talk about that. I mean, I could make a whole bunch of sermons on that. I'm kind of frustrated, but we've got to move on. But if you take that thought and plant it in your mind and heart and think about it, it literally changes just about everything about the way you live. But we're going to move to what's called the second table of the law, and I'm going to go back again to, um, to last Sunday. Remember, we talked about two things last Sunday. The first one was God's nearness. And the second thing was from Deuteronomy 4, eight. What great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? So we said that God was saying to Israel, Number one, I'm near you. And number two, there's no other nation that has laws that are so righteous. And again, when you hear the word righteous, you should always think of the word justice. There's no other nation that pays attention in a just way to its community like you do. Brueggemann says this. Deuteronomy... And the entire covenantal tradition thus envision a total renovation of social relationships that are intrinsically valuable and that are, that are to be safeguarded by the community without respect to utility. That is, I am to safeguard your value and we are to safeguard the value of each other regardless of what you can produce. It almost sounds like socialism. (laughs) We are to value the other person and the creation, I would add, regardless of what they can produce or what they can do for us. And in that light let's read the second table of the law Deuteronomy 5:16 to 21. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord God your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder and now I want to point something else out. You will notice that the next 3 the next 4 verses start with the word and If you look in, in Exodus 20, that word and isn't there. So it's like it's this one great big long sentence. You shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. And you shall not steal and you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house his field, his male servant, or his female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. It's this great, wonderful sentence of saying, we're connected to each other. Just because we are. And this is how we treat each other. Quote Brueggemann again. It is possible to suggest that an unrestrained commitment to productivity and isn't the United States economic system nothing less than an unrestrained commitment to productivity and consumerism. That has its counterpart in unrestrained violence and exploitation. If you only value something for what it will give you, You are going to become violent and exploitative in which there is no fabric of respect or restraint. Thus, the entire series of commandments from Sabbath rest through the prohibition of false witness proposes a radically different perspective in which, and listen to this, this is just, this, this, this should blow your mind and change your life, in which the neighborhood and not the unbridled self. What's a bridle? A bridle is what you put on a horse to keep it going in a certain direction. And the militarism, materialism, and racism of our time is unbridled self. And the commandments offer us a radically different perspective. The most important thing is us. Not what you can purchase. The neighborhood and not the unbridled self is the unit of social meaning. An amazing sentence. And then he goes on. This and each generation in Israel is being summoned yet again to re-decide about the kinds of connectedness that make human life viable. And you and I, and we today, by hearing these commandments, are being summoned again, not to transaction, not to just a vertical keeping of the rules, but to a connectedness without which real human life is not possible. I've been thinking about this kind of stuff for years, for decades, and I still don't get it. Because this unbridled self and this transaction idea is so deeply rooted in the society in which I grew up in and in the theological education that I got. It is hard to break out of this. And that's why a little bit later in the chapter, in verse 29, God through Moses looks at the people and he heaves a deep sigh. And he says, Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. God looks at the people of Israel and he says, I wish you would be able to do this. There's nothing I would like better. There's nothing that would make me happier. There's nothing that would make me feel that this work of creation that I've done is doing what I intended it to do. Than if you would live like this so that it would go well with you and with your descendants forever, I would love that. But it ain't going to happen. Because you people don't want to live as if i'm there you don't want to live core mdu and you are intent upon exploiting and consuming and producing and being utilitarian in the way that you treat each other and the creation or to put it another way as the old testament says you have a heart of stone and you could almost hear God weeping. He's sending them into this beautiful land. He's sending them in as a colony. Here's the way I want you to live in this neighborhood with each other. And you're not going to do it. But Then He gives a promise. In Ezekiel 36, one of my favorite verses, God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your, fle- from, your, from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and you shall be my people, and I will be your God. Oh God! God says to Israel even after the exile, after they've totally failed to do what God called them to do, He says, I'm going to do an operation. I'm going to change your heart of stone and make it a heart of flesh. And then Jesus came. The man with a heart of flesh. The man that never paid attention to utility. The man that was not transactional. And because he wasn't, He was killed. And he rose again. And he met his disciples in the upper room. And he said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, how has the Father sent me? The Ten Commandments. Israel into Canaan. New colony. Bring the kingdom. The kingdom is nearby. It's right here before the face of God. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you, colony. And when he said this, what did he do? He breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. See this line? God looks at Israel and sighs, You aren't going to be able to do this. And then centuries later, he says, but I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And then a couple centuries later, he sends Jesus. And that's exactly what Jesus does. And then in Galatians 5, in this very famous verse, the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatian church, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of a heart of of flesh, not a heart of stone, The fruit of people who've received the Holy Spirit from Jesus Christ is what? Love, joy, and these are all community words, these are all connected words, these are all neighbor words. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. We don't need a law anymore if this is coming from your heart. See this movement through the scriptures? It's not moving us all in the direction of, if I do this, then God will take me to heaven when I die. That's just simply not the direction. The direction is, how can we live as a community, as this colony, and, 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 and live in such a way that God can work through us to bring about the renewal of the creation that's so needed because of the brokenness into which we plunged it? You may have seen this week a video that uh, was shared a lot, or at least a a piece of a video. It was an interview on the, um, I believe it's called The Late Show with Stephen Colbert. Some of you have seen it. Um, Stephen was... uh, interviewing a lady by the name of Dua Lipa, who's an English-Albanian singer and model and will be setting up her own uh, program to do interviews shortly. And in the middle of the interview, the tables turned, and Dua asked Stephen Colbert a question. And it was a pretty amazing question and a pretty amazing answer. And I'd like you to listen to it.
1: Um, so I think something that your uh, viewers really connect with in your comedy and your hosting skills especially in the like past few years is how open and honest and authentic you are about the role your faith plays in your life oh, and I was wondering Is there any, you know, does your faith and your comedy ever overlap? (laughs) And does one ever win out? I think ultimately, us all being mortal, the faith will win out at the end. (laughs) But I certainly hope when I get to heaven, Jesus has a sense of humor. But I'll say this, I'll say this, uh, someone was asking me earlier about what I, this is this relates to faith, because my faith is involved with, I'm, I'm a Christian and a Catholic, and that's re- re- always connected to the idea of um, love and sacrifice mm-hmm. being somehow related, and giving yourself to other people, and that death is not defeat, if you, if you can see where I'm getting at there. Someone was asking me earlier what movie did I really enjoy this year? And I said well I really like Belfast which is kind of Branagh's story of his childhood and one of the reasons I love it is that I'm Irish and uh, Irish-American and it's such an Irish movie um, and I think this is also a Catholic thing because it's, it's funny and it's sad and it's funny about being sad. In the same way that sadness is like a little bit of an emotional death but not a defeat if you can find a way to laugh about it because that laughter keeps you from having fear of it. And fear is the thing that keeps you from turning to evil devices to save you from the sadness. As Robert Hayden said, we must not be frightened or cajoled into accepting evil as our deliverance from evil. We must keep struggling to maintain our humanity, though monsters of abstraction threaten and police us. So if there's some relationship between my faith and my comedy, it's that no matter what happens, you are never defeated. You must understand and see this in the light of eternity and find some way to love and laugh with each other.
0: And the Catholic. And that's always connected to the idea of love and sacrifice being somehow related. Because there's no love if there's no sacrifice. And giving yourselves to other people. See that community aspect? Embedded deeply. We must struggle, he quotes Robert Hayden, We must keep struggling to maintain our humanity, that's us, though monsters of abstraction threaten and police us. So if there is some relation between my faith and my comedy, it's that no matter what happens, you are never defeated. You must understand and see this in the light of eternity, quorum Deo, and find some way to love, and laugh with who each other see what god's doing here he's he's pulling his people together in ways that i'm pretty sure we don't we just don't understand we we just don't know how to do it but we're called to start to learn that I am not free until you are free. I am not well until you are well. And that's what the Ten Commandments is all about. Living Coram Deo, in, before the face of God, as a community, connected, this web of belonging, all made possible by Jesus Christ, who came to earth, who lived in this way, who was killed for it, but who could not and did not stay in the grave, but rose and called his little group, his little community of people together and said, I'm sending you now in the way that God has sent me. Here's my spirit. Go and do what I have called you to do because I will always be with you until the end of the age. And that's why we celebrate communion. To remind us that even though this event happened 2,000 years ago, it's still happening today. Remember those words from the beginning? It's today. And to get the strength that we need and to help us repent where we need to repent, to get rid of this heart of stone, this self bridled in un, unbridled individual individuality and turn ourselves into a community that literally changes the way things are